you'd open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. I just want to know that if you uh, uh, do want to, if maybe you have some interest in teaching toddlers in Sunday school, just so you know, it can be entertaining um, because of just the way they express themselves and what they're thinking about. It can be revealing uh, because they can at times uh, reveal things about their family. Um, so uh, there may be a wee bit of maturity needed on your part to uh, know what things to keep to yourself. Um, and that should not be topics of conversation at lunch um, because you may learn some of the sin in the lives of others as well as some of the quirks. So, uh, uh, so we will be praying for those who will be wanting to teach that group that God will lead the right people there um, and we won't have to, uh, you know, squelch any gossip. Anyway, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, let's pray. Father, we are grateful. You are good to us in so many ways. And we acknowledge that, Father. And Lord, as we, as we live our lives as Christians and as we gather here to worship you, we know, Lord, that we are called to live for you, to be like Christ. We know, Lord, that you are working in us to make us like Christ. And Lord, there are times in our lives that that is not so much on our minds. We easily become distracted and busy in the world where we we don't live as we really should be living. We're not thinking about uh, the way we live our lives. We don't really evaluate where we are, uh, maybe as often as we should. And as a result, Father, we, we find ourselves sometimes unwittingly beginning to move away from you, to drift uh, from where we ought to be. We find that our joy begins to become a little more dampened and we become maybe a little more irritable. We become a little more anxious our lives become uh, much more noticeably disrupted. Uh, there seems to be, uh, we seem to be missing a little bit of the peace of God that we sometimes have experienced before. So Father, we ask that you would help us, Father, to once again refocus on your word and, and to understand what it says and that, Lord, it would permeate uh, every aspect of our lives. We ask, Lord, that we would be challenged, that we would be changed by the teaching of your word this morning. As always, we are grateful that you've communicated to us and that you have preserved your word for us. We do thank you for this and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Sometimes in the Bible, the chapter divisions are a little less than stellar. And this verse really, and most would agree with this when you look at the commentaries, would say that verse 1 of chapter 7 really should be the last verse of chapter 6. Because that's kind of where it naturally fits. And I want to take a look at this today because even though we've talked about, you know, this idea that we are called as ministers of reconciliation, uh, that we are to... Um, and make sure that we are associating with, with those that are really going in the same direction that we are going, that we are careful when it comes to our associations with unbelievers as to far as how involved we are with them, and whether it's, it's again, through marriage or through business or whatnot. All those things kind of bring together this idea of how we are to be living, and we should be living consciously in light of what the Word of God says Paul then kind of also brings it down more to the individual level to what we should be 
maybe really focusing on why all these things are the way that they should be, why he is saying that we are to be living in a particular way. And that is this idea that we are to kind of move away from being defiled, be aware of what it means to be defiled. You, we're familiar with that term a lot in the Old Testament, uh, where, you know, the nation of Israel as individuals, they, they were, I don't, I don't want to use the word afraid, and that might be a, a proper term to use, but they were very concerned about being defiled. Because if you became defiled, then there were certain things that you could not do. The most important thing is you could not go to the tabernacle or you could not go to the temple to worship. You were banned from that place for a particular period of time, depending on how you were defiled, whether it was for a period of a few days or for quite a few days. And because Israel was a religious community and nation, everything in their society, everything they did together as a culture revolved around God, the worship of God, the presence of God, the law of God. It was very intimately woven. So then when you were defiled, you were cut off really from participating in this community because no one wanted to be defiled because of you. Being defiled was one of the ways that God was using to teach Israel that he demanded holiness for us to dwell with God, to fellowship deeply with God. We needed to be on the same page. And this is the work of God that is in us. We've been saved from our sin. But remember that it's, it's not this idea that we are condemned to hell and over here is the pursuit of holiness and God saves us and picks us up and puts us right here in the middle and says, I would like you to pursue holiness, but whatever you do, that's kind of up to you, but this is what I would like. The idea is that we've been saved from our sin for this. Now, being saved from sin for this, to be a holy people to God, remember, that's not a negative thing. See, if we think like the world, then we're going to be thinking, yeah, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm saved from my sin, and now i got to be holy. And we think of all this long list of all these do's and don'ts uh, that we need to kind of keep track on, to keep track of, and it's somehow a burden. It's somehow a joyless pursuit of, of, of things. To, to pursue holiness, we equate it as being a joyless pursuit. Now, again, we can compare it to a lot of different things. Again, one of those would be marriage. Uh, and hopefully, you know, when people get married, because it would be unusual to see this happen, at the moment that the minister pronounces them husband and wife, you know, the man turns around and says, now I begin a life of joyless service to this woman. <laughs> I, that's not really the idea. They're usually smiling, and some would say because they don't know any better. But the idea is, is that it does alter and change every facet of your life. You now really must, and it's kind of an automatic thing, think differently. You no longer... Only think in terms of just you. You now think in terms of we. And everything that happens. Your job, whether or not you should accept a promotion, whether or not you should quit your job and get another job, where you're going to live. I mean, the list just goes on and on. It's always this idea, at least it should be, this idea of we. So being married is no longer where you are single, and now you are placed in between being committed to this person and being single, and it's now you get to choose how you want to live. No, you've, you've been, you are setting yourself apart for this new life 
that you've entered into with this person. And we even use phrases that they're going to kind of create a new life together. The old life still, is still there, all those things you did, but you are leaving that life. That, that old life has shaped in a lot of ways who you are, but you're leaving that life to create a new one. So when it comes to this relationship now, because when we are saved, we now enter into this relationship with the God of the universe. I was his enemy, now I am his child. He has now made all these promises to me that he's going to keep because he is a promise-keeping God. There's all these benefits. But this is not where I just passively sit and enjoy the benefits. But again, this pursuit or this working towards holiness is not this joyless or meaningless or empty or depressing kind of pursuit. It's the opposite of that. It is really uplifting and joyous, and even though there was failures along the way, we're continuing to move in the direction of where our joy with the Lord is going to be deepened. There's just a quote that I just thought was good, just kind of as a background. It's from Elizabeth Elliot, and she said that God has never promised to solve our problems. He has not promised to answer our questions. He has promised to go with us. And so this life as believers, God is with us. He's he, in, in a, in a, again, in a particular way. It, it doesn't mean that as you live your life as a non-believer, God is nowhere to be found, but you're not related to him in a proper fashion. God is everywhere, but you're his enemy. It's not a good position to be in. The idea is now God is with me wherever we go. He is my friend. He is my father. He's my protector. He's my provider. He's my savior. He's all of these things. So in light of all these things, he tells us here, let us cleanse. The English word we get from the Greek word is catharsis. There is to be an emotional and or a physical purging. The, the word group, there's several different words that are in this Greek family of words. And it conveys the idea of physical, religious, and moral cleanness or purity. It, it is, is where we are free from stains or shame, free from adulteration. Paul, when he uses this term here, let us cleanse, uses this in the arrowist tense. So what that calls for is a sudden, decisive action on the part of, a, of the believer. Basically, he's saying, make a clean and complete break from defilement. We want to move away from that. We want to move away from sin. We have this new desire that's going to continue to grow and develop as believers. And, and we make that decision. Let me read to you from the book of James, James chapter 4. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. The idea of drawing near to God should be something that we want. When, you know, when you get married, when you find that person that you love, you want to draw near to that person. You want them to be drawn near to you. Here, in drawing near to God, what's encompassed in that idea is that we want to move away from sin, move away from selfish pursuits that we're engaged in. Because God is all these things. He's everything. He's the ultimate. He knows what is best. We, we sometimes have a hard time trusting that. Early in my life as a believer, when I was infatuated to a very high degree with playing football, I did not trust God. I trusted God for a lot of things. But I didn't trust God for that. Because I was afraid. I didn't really thought about it. I was just assumed he wouldn't want me to be doing that. I just assumed that. And I was worried, so I was going to hold on to that with everything I had. 
And so I made all of my decisions in life based on pursuing playing football. Now, I know you may think that's foolish, and it probably is, but a lot of people make decisions for lots of other reasons other than pursuing the things that God wants. Where I, where I went to school when I was going was decided by where I was going to play. How I ate, how I dressed, how I did everything was all based on that. Because I didn't trust God. God can be trusted. He can be. Now, I don't know this. It's pure speculation. That, you know, I only, you know, when it comes to my football career, it's pretty short. You know, and so I, there was this, I, in my mind, I played only one year in college. It was a great, fabulous year, and then it was over, forever. Uh, I, I think, again, this is a speculation, I think that if I was following the Lord the way I should have, there's a good possibility I would have been able to play all four years and had greater enjoyment. I don't know that, but I kind of think, based on what was going on, that, that might have happened. So what I really wanted the most at that time, I lost because I was holding on to it so tight to the detriment of my soul and my relationship with the Lord. And there are many things in life that we are pursuing that may not necessarily be bad, but we don't really trust God for those things, and so we want to keep control of those things. And we need to move away from that. Let me read to you from the Amplified. Come close to God. He will come close to you. Recognize that you are sinners. Get your soiled hands clean. Realize that you have been disloyal, wavering individuals with, di with divided interest, and purify your hearts of your spiritual adultery. Remember, James is written to a group of believers. And he wants them to come clean. He wants them to recognize what's happening in their life. And this is the path they need to take. And so this is a call to you and I. This is the same thing they has here in verse 1 of chapter 7. As these individuals in this church are kind of being drawn away by these false teachers. Again, by individuals who are trying to kind of replace Paul for various reasons. And they're, moving, they're drifting from God. And so that there's this command, there's this call for them to do this. And he, even though he's made this comparison and kind of called out these false teachers for who we are, for who they are, he is making the believers there. They are responsible, though. They need to do the right thing. They, they can't point their fingers and say, well, I was misled by these false teachers. They were being misled, but they are accountable for their part in that, for all of their part in that. And this is the remedy here. It doesn't feel sorry for yourself. This is a wait until they're dealt with and then you can recover. The idea is you need to make this decision right now. Again, when he says, let us cleanse ourselves in chapter 7, verse 1 of 2 Corinthians, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. The word defilement means stain or soil. It's a word that's used when you want to smear someone with mud. It's, it's obviously a very religious word. It's used in that context a great deal. But again, it's a word that describes something that's stained, something that is soiled, and so it produces foulness. It produces dirtiness. It produces uncleanness. God is very particular about this. This is heavy on God's heart. This, this is, in essence, all of God's attributes really are described by holiness. God's love is a holy love. God's wrath is a holy wrath. And we can kind of go on that way with that to help us to understand and grasp, in essence, who God is. What he wants us to be are those who are holy. We're not going to be able to get that on our own. So we are cleansed of our sin. We are forgiven of our sin through Christ. And then we are given God's spirit to live in us. And then that's going to enable us and help us in this task of pursuing holiness. 
Synonyms for this would be contamination, corruption, pollution. Again, defilement is the corruption of morals. It is the defilement of principles or character. Again, it is impurity. It is pollution for sin or by sin. There's an old preacher, I believe he was up in Chicago, named Harry Ironside. And let me read to you what he said in one of his messages. He said, what is the difference between filthiness of the flesh and filthiness of the spirit? Now, he uses the word filthiness on, pur on purpose because sometimes we either hear the word defilement or even we might even hear the word sin, and we don't really think in terms of it being like that. So filthy is a, is a good term that we can identify with. He says, these are two classes of sin, and all sin is filthy in the sight of God. Filthiness of the flesh refers to sins of the body, and there are so many of them. Unholy lust, unbridled appetites, drunkenness, gluttonous, licentiousness, inordinate affection, all are sins of the flesh. And though at the present time our abominable philosophies throw a glamour over these things, they are utterly vile in God's sight. But what about filthiness of spirit? Well, that would be vanity, pride, conceit, haughtiness, and unbelief. And these are just as evil as these other things in the sight of God. A young woman who stands in front of her mirror for hours, trying to make a work of art out of her face in order to attract the attention of the opposite sex, that is vanity. And that is so characteristic of her, uh, and it is truly filthy in the sight of God as the other sins I've mentioned. Take that man who is arrogant and haughty and proud, and he's seeking power or authority over others. He is constantly looking for admiration from others who, like himself, are going on to the grave. That haughtiness, that pride, that self-confidence in God's sight is absolutely filthy. He tells us to cleanse ourselves with these things because he says the desire is, to, is bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. A.T. Robertson, who's written a... Uh, it's a collection of, of word studies and dealing with the Greek language and, and kind of drawing out more of the Greek uh, in, in the text of Scripture so we can understand it. He says this, Paul is calling for not merely negative goodness in cleansing, but aggressive and progressive um, holiness. Not a sudden attainment of complete holiness, but a continuous process. Let me read to you from Titus chapter 2, beginning of verse 11. It says, For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great Savior, great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So I think this verse, as we just kind of focus on it and think about it, becomes very self-explanatory to us. The grace of God, which is the strength that God gives us to accomplish things, that comes from his goodness that we obviously have not earned, this grace, it's, it's appeared. And it has brought salvation. And, and what this grace does is it's training us. Remember, we've all been corrupted by sin. We are forgiven, but now we have to unlearn several things. There are several things we do habitually. You know, we have these default positions. We've got to move away from that. You know, a default position would be when things don't quite go the way we want to, we become irritable or angry. We, have, we, have to have, we need to have a new default position. That, that's, that should not be the first place that we go, is that. 
So he's training us to renounce ungodliness. And remember that oftentimes in the Bible, ungodliness really is living your life as if God just doesn't exist or as if God doesn't matter or maybe perhaps you're thinking that God is uninterested. So the idea is that we need to be trained so that we can think in the terms of the fact that God is always present and interested in every single thing you and I do think, say, and do. There's, there's this God thing going on all the time. It matters to God how you act at work, how you interact with people, whether it's customers, co-workers, or whatever else is going on. The way we conduct ourselves, the attitudes that we express are important to God. And it matters to God to such a degree that we are to curtail or kind of make sure we behave in such a way that it will correspond with God looking upon us favorably. We, we, we cannot live our lives in any sphere of our existence and just forget the fact that God is there. Now again, this is not, to be a, this, is not this heavy, burdensome thing that's negative. It's a very positive thing. God, is, God wants to be pleased with us. God loves us dearly. He's already made the greatest sacrifices for us. He, he wants us to be with him for all of eternity. He wants to use us in the lives of others. He wants to bless us. He wants us to have joy. He wants us to have great joy, deep joy, complete joy. He wants those things for us. But again, this is not where then we just live our lives and do whatever we want. We, we are pursuing certain things because we want to, because we have the heart of God. We want to share his desires. We want to pursue and see the same things that he wants to see when it comes to what's accomplished and what's done and whatnot. So we are trained to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions. Worldly passions is, is basically the idea of living by your lust. So it doesn't always mean that all those things are wrong, but those things never are to become ultimate. They're never, they're never the ultimate thing. It's always going to be God and his will. He tells us that we are also being trained to what? Live self-controlled. So you know, we're never allowed as believers to lose control of our emotions. And this is not just talking about outbursts of anger. Because we often think that way. He's out of control. He's angry. But it could be a lot of things. You may be out of control in your pursuit of admiration from others. You may be out of control in pursuing sensual lust. It may be out of control in your pursuit of money. It may, there's a lot of things that we can be out of control when it comes to, these, to, to, to the lust uh, and to the emotions in, in our lives as individuals. We need to be trained to bring those things under control. Again, those things coming under control is, is not viewed as a negative thing. If you ever, you know, sometimes we forget how large and powerful a horse can be. But if you get into a corral with a horse that's wild, it's a dangerous place to be. You don't want to be there. The, ho the horse can, if you don't know what you're doing, the horse can kill you. And the goal when we break a horse in is to bring all of its strength under control so that horse can be used to accomplish what we want it to accomplish, whether it's a show horse or it's a work horse or whatever it happens to be. The idea is we want to harness all of the greatness that is in that animal and bring it under control. So that it then becomes not only not harmful to you, but maybe even not harmful to itself. And that's the idea here with, with this. 
Growing to live self-controlled, upright, and then, of course, godly lives. And this is in the present age. We do so in the present age, as he says here, looking for the appearing of his glory. Because we know he's coming. I'm looking for his, his appearing. I'm going to be living in this particular way. So the message of God's grace, when its full implications are seen, leads the Christian to say basically no to ungodliness, no to worldly passions, and positively to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. So if you, are, if, if you lack self-control, you should be upset with yourself as a Christian. It should bother you. You want to get a hold of that. The gospel of God's grace affects one's present behavior by focusing on God's unmerited favor, his grace in the past. But again, the gospel also promotes godly living by focusing on the future because we look forward to what's called the blessed hope, the appearing of Christ. It's crucial for us as Christians to see that this one to whom we look forward to meeting is the same one who gave himself to redeem us from all wickedness, to purify for himself a people that are his very own and eager to do what is good. Again, going back to marriage, especially in their early days, when the two individuals in the marriage are eager to do things to please the other. Now, that eagerness should continue for the rest of your married life, uh, but there seems to be an extra degree of energy in the beginning. It's, just, it's normal, it's natural, nothing wrong with that, but there's that eagerness. So there's, there should be this eagerness to want to please God. So even though I'm, you know, you, I, for those of you who know me, you know, I'm not really big on, uh, I, well, let's put it this way, I downplay emotions a great deal. But I don't think emotions should be eliminated. And I do think sometimes we almost become stoic and there's no emotions in our commitment to Christ. I'm not, you know, the emotions in service, eh, whatever. You know, people can conjure those up and that's one, one thing or another. I, you know, it's, it's, I'm fine with wherever you are on that. But there needs to be this emotion in our commitment to Christ. And it's not there. At least sometimes, maybe a lot. It's not there. We need to be driven by that. Because we love him. And I know this is good for me. And I want to do these things. You know, because sin, temptation is very powerful. And it can really put a damper on that. We really, there are certain things we want to pursue, whatever that is. It's what we want. And so we, we, need, we need a change of mind and we need the help of God in doing that. The holy people set aside by God is God's purpose in paying the price that he paid. So again, knowing what he has done and why he has done it, a Christian then who truly loves Christ looks forward to his return and will pay any price to bring his life into conformity with the Lord's will. Now that's not original with me, that's from someone else. Let me read that again. It reads this way. A Christian who truly loves Christ and who truly looks forward to his return will pay any price to bring his life into conformity with the Lord's will, lest he disappoints Christ at his, at his return. 1 John 3, 3, John wrote this, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. I can tell you for a fact, in my life as a Christian, this has not always been the case. I have not been that individual who is willing to pay any price to bring my life into conformity to his will so that he won't be disappointed. For many, many years of my life as a Christian, that just never crossed my mind. I just live my life. 
just do what I want to do my way. Not necessarily sinful, but not exactly godly either. I was just living by the seat of my pants. And this is not what God's calling us to do. He wants us to think about our lives and think through these things. And that's where the evaluation of our lives are important. To think about where we are in our lives as Christians and where we are in our growth. Not so we can sit there and then feel bad and condemn ourselves. It's, it's the idea of evaluating self to correct something. To do something better or to do something that's going to be helpful. In the same way that you might evaluate your own health. It's not so that you can then sit there and, and, and hate yourself because you're unhealthy. You already know that. What you're doing is, is you want to evaluate what you're doing with your health to, to take corrective action, to stop eating certain things. It's, in, it's interesting in the South, everyone remembers the day that they had to give up sweet tea. Sweet tea is a big deal. Just drink it all the time. And then they say, you know, a day came. We all, people were older. Yeah, I, I had to stop drinking sweet tea. There's so many stinking calories in that thing. You know, it just, that happens. I've met a whole lot of people who confess the day when they gave up fried food, because we don't tend to do that. Even though I guess a lot of doctors say we should. I eat less, only three days a week instead of five. But you know. But the idea is, is that we, we want to do these things and we need to be thinking and cognizant. Let me read to you from 1 Peter chapter 1. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each man's deeds, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So Peter goes back to the Old Testament and wants to understand that God has always been this way. Be holy. Why? Because he is holy. Period. And it reminds them that God judges impartially. Remember that that's not just for us to think, yeah, God's going to judge sinners and he's going to judge them impartially. God's judging you and me impartially. What I learned from my father is most of the time, if not always, I have no excuse for my behavior. He kept telling me that. After a while, I began to believe him. (laughs) Knew it was true. I have no excuse. The idea here is is that he's going to judge me impartially. My parents made it clear. They don't care what everyone else is doing. That's not the measure of the judgment. This is what you know you should be doing and how you should be doing. And that's the idea. You and I are Christians. It doesn't matter how the world behaves. We are called to conduct ourselves in a particular way. It doesn't matter what the world is struggling with. You and I are called by God to behave in a particular way. One of the strengths that we, and resources we should make sure we use in our lives as Christians is each other. We need to be praying for each other. Even if you don't know the details of, of anyone else's life here, you can pray that God 
in his grace will grant them greater strength in pursuing holiness in their lives. Because it's a struggle for all of us. It's hard. It's not natural. The temptations continue to come at us. And it's, again, it's not, don't just think in terms of the temptations of being for men, other women, and for women, other men. It goes way beyond that. And so we need to be concerned about those things. And we need to pray for each other. That is a ministry. It's not a ministry you're going to be decorated for. It's not a ministry that we're going to, you know, kind of put a post up on the wall. And it, and it would seem kind of weird, you know, if I, if I get up here one day and say, well, I've, I've been praying this week. In fact, I've, I've especially been praying for Steve and for his holiness. I'm thinking, hmm, Steve, holiness? What's going on with Steve? See where we go right away. But we should be doing that. And, and, we, and when someone says, how can I pray for you? This, this can sound kind of weird. Because it sounds like we're getting ready to confess some big sin. But can you pray for me that I'll continue to pursue holiness? That God will give me strength to pursue holiness? That, that holiness will be important to me? It's not that it's not important to me, but it's not that important. However way you're going to say it, but we, we, we need to do that. Again, he, what does he tell us here? We need, we need to cleanse ourselves from all defilement. We should be awed and restrained by a sense of God's presence. And then in that, move away from committing sin and from indulging ourselves in the pollutions of the flesh. One individual pointed this out. He says, you know, when a child is around, often just the presence of a child will restrain someone from doing or saying certain things. I see it happen all the time. Individuals who may use four-letter words on a regular basis, and all of a sudden they're around children, and those words are gone, or they catch themselves. They're not going to do it in front of the children. Same kind of idea. We're in the presence of God. Why would we do that in the presence of God? God is all-present, all-seeing, and that should keep us from these things. A man who's a farmer who plows his field and sows the seed, fertilizes and cultivates his crop, is acutely aware that in the final analysis he is utterly dependent for a good crop on forces outside of himself because he can't cause the seed to germinate, he can't cause the rain to fall, and he can't make the sun to shine. But he pursues his task with diligence anyhow, both looking to God for blessing and knowing that if he does not fertilize and cultivate the sown seed, his crop is going to be meager at best. Horatius Bonar says this, Holiness extends to every part of our persons. It fills up our being. It spreads over our life. Influences everything we are or do or think or speak or plan, small or great, outward or inward, negative or positive, our loving, our hating, our sorrowing, our rejoicing, our recreations, our business, our friendships, our relationships, our silence and our speech, our reading, our writing, our going out and our coming in. Our whole man in every movement of spirit, soul, and body, the call to holiness is a daily task. I want to end with this little bit. This is a story told by a missionary. He had uh, retired after many years in the mission field, and he was now home in the States. 
and he had a garden, and in his garden, and it doesn't name what kind of shrub this was, but he had a shrub that had poisonous leaves. At that time, his grandchildren would come around, and of course his grandchildren, because of their age, were prone to put anything within reach into their mouths. And so naturally, he was aware of that, so he dug the shrub out, and he threw it away. The shrub's roots, however, were very deep, and soon the shrub would sprout again. So repeatedly, this missionary had to dig it out. There was no solution but to inspect the ground every day and to dig up the shrub every time it surfaced. Indwelling sin is like that shrub. It needs constant uprooting. Our hearts need continual mortification. So we need to examine and watch over the garden of our souls, so to speak, and look for those things that are deep-seated. Most of us know what those things are. We may ask for the help of a spouse or someone who knows us very well in spotting those things, but it's important. It should be important to us because we love God with all of our heart, mind, and soul. And we want to live in obedience to what he says. We want him to be pleased with us and to be happy. So this is a command, but it's a command with such wonderful and incredible blessings that come our way as we pursue this. And along with that, this will take place as we pursue holiness. Just so you know, you will sleep better. You pursue holiness, your friendships will be more enjoyable. Your marriage relationship, it will get better. It will get better if you do these things. God seeks to bless his children. And the thing that contaminates these things and ruins them is always sin, our sin. And God is willing to help us. He doesn't just give us the command and sit back and watch. He's willing to help us, in a sense, to dig out that shrub. He's willing to do that. He's willing to help us to spot it the moment it begins to sprout. He is there to help us and to aid us in this way. And our relationship with God will continue to grow and to develop. And it, will, and it will be that wonderful, deep relationship that we so longingly want and desire. And we will then also find ourselves longing for the soon return of our Savior. Looking forward to his appearing. And not being fearful at all that he will be disappointed in what he finds. Father, we thank you for your goodness, grace, and patience with us. Father, we know that in our lives as believers, I know, Lord, we've failed you several times. For some, they have failed you at certain moments in lives. For others, there has seemed to have been periods of time in our life that we failed you. Well, we may have struggled for weeks or months, or sometimes, in some cases, it seems a lot longer than that. We've just kind of wallowed in, whether it's self-pity or sin or some combination of things. Yet, Lord, through all of that, in the same way that we love our children and love our grandchildren and our arms are open to them at any point in time, and we desire to help them and to encourage them to overcome any obstacle in life, you are like that with us. And I pray, Lord, that you will not allow the evil one to cause us to think otherwise. It's true, you desire that we repent, but it's a wonderful thing. You're not stern in all these things. You love us. And you care for us. And it's a strong love. And so, Father, we ask that you would soften our hearts and you help us to respond to what you've said. 
We pray that when we read verse 1 of chapter 7, that we will not view it in a negative way at all. That we will have a great desire to pursue these things for your sake as well as really for ours. Again, Father, for some, there's been a season of struggle with sin because they don't know you. They, there is no inner strength. There's no spirit of God to help them to overcome. They, they're not living in the grace of God. And I pray, Lord, that you would open their eyes to help them to see your grace. That, Father, you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, into the world while we were yet sinners to die for us. That you might reconcile us to yourself. What an incredible display of love. And so, Father, we thank you for that. We ask, Lord, again, that you would remind us often of the words of Scripture. And that your Spirit would use these things to make us more like your Son, Christ, outwardly and inwardly. And we do ask these things in his name. Amen.